This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today is a special episode for me because I'm talking to Michael Zilka, half of the team behind Z Records in the 1980s. If you've listened to 12 Songs, you've likely heard me talking about how my attitudes towards Christmas music evolved. As a kid, I liked it like all kids like it. But when I became a teenager, I found it corny. Looking back, I can see that I was at the age where I was my record collection, and my friendships were largely shaped by how people fit into it. Not entirely, but if our tastes overlapped, we had a connection. And in ninth or 10th grade, we didn't connect over songs by Andy Williams or Jack Jones or Robert Goulet. They were part of a version of showbiz that appeared on TV talk shows and specials, and the reasons for their fame were never entirely clear. In 1979 or 1980, I was record shopping in Toronto and found a bunch of albums on Z Records cut out and took a chance on them. Records by James White and the Blacks, The Contortions, Kid Creole and the Coconuts, and Lydia Lunch. And they hit a sweet spot for me. They were from New York, and at that point the sun rose in New York for me, far more than London. They also had the confrontational quality of punk, but they showed good pop sense, which was always important to me. I heard the Ramones of sped up, stripped down Beach Boys songs and gravitated towards bands with hooks before bands with energy. But what I really wanted was bands with both. The artists on Z were generally pro dance music. And although I was leery at the time of disco because we've been told over and over again that disco sucked, I liked Disco Inferno and Chic enough to know I couldn't simply dismiss it. When Z released a Christmas record in 1981, I heard Christmas music made for me by people I liked, like August Darnell, Kid Creole, and James White and the Blacks, and The Waitresses and Suicide. It was a Christmas album that wasn't made for family Christmas dinner. It was made for people who went to clubs, or, like me, wanted to. The songs conjured up an entire alternative Christmas world to the ones invoked by songs by Dean Martin or Bing Crosby or Nat King Cole, and that spoke to me. Over the years, I've spent time unpacking my relationship to a Christmas record, even more so since I started working on 12 songs. So I'm glad to finally get to talk to Michael Zilka, who is behind it. I should add a footnote before we get started. During our conversation, we talked about Christina and her song, Things Fall Apart. Since she was Zilka's ex-wife, I followed his lead in our conversation and didn't bring up the fact that she died of COVID-19 almost a year ago. I remembered her death at My Spilt Milk, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But since he didn't talk about it in the episode, I didn't bring it up. To get started, I want to go back to an earlier episode of 12 Songs. In 2018, I interviewed Chris Butler of The Waitresses about Christmas rapping. The song was written for the Z Christmas album, and it is the song from it that entered the Christmas canon. Here's Chris Butler on the story behind the song. We'll be back with Michael Zilka on the other side. A ZE or Z Records was um, an imprint, uh, kind of a boutique imprint um, uh, led by Michael Zilka and Michael Esteban, ZE. Um, wow. It was in New York, uh, early 80s, mid to, to mid 80s. Um, very selective about the, the, the roster, um, kind of a collection of oddballs, but um, a... a, a 
in, in, interesting stable of people, King Creole and the Coconuts, um, who were uh, a fantastic um, show band, um, versus Alan Vega from the band Suicide, who was completely um, uh, avant-garde, esoteric, uh, uh, very outsider. Um, a, a, a label that also tended to book people who, or to, to sign people who were um, kind of a, a, had a dose of the European avant-garde or, or could be could be popular internationally. We, the waitresses, were kind of an exception. We were a Midwestern band, um, um, imaginary band at first in, in, the, in the Akron area. Then I moved to New York and um, uh, Patty came and we put together uh, a real band of, of other Midwesterners, um, uh, transplanted Midwesterners, because they work real hard. And we were we were kind of more of a conventional, you know, put the band in a van and tour um, uh, entity. Um, but uh, we had um, recorded uh, our uh, um, uh, a flip side to I Know What Boys Like called No Guilt. And um, it did reasonably, the I Know What Boys Like single did reasonably well. And um, we started out on Antilles, which was a subdivision of Ireland. And then we're kind of, our contract was kind of sold or shifted over to ZE. And Michael Zilka suggested, you know, hey, let's, let's make an album. Um, so we did, but they had lost their distribution from uh, WEA, Warner Brothers. Uh, and we were in limbo a bit, so we had a single, an album in the can, and eventually it, it, it uh, was released. Um, so I think I think it was the spring of '81. I'm not sure about that. Um, and it, it did reasonably well. And uh, sometime in August of 1981, Michael suggested. Uh, why don't we do a Christmas record with a stable of artists, each one contributing a, a Christmas song? Now, it was kind of a curious idea because, uh, you know, they were pretty much, we were pretty much oddballs, uh, and all the artists were kind of unique and quirky, and you didn't get a warm, fuzzy feeling from people like um, Alan Vega, uh, necessarily. But um, people were gung-ho. We were gung-ho, uh, although I grumbled a lot because uh, we were very busy and I didn't have a whole lot of material and nothing really lying around and had basically two weeks to come up with a Christmas song. Um, stole a little bit of uh, riffing from here and a little bit of lyric from there and was literally uh, writing uh, the lyrics, finishing the lyrics in the taxi cab over to Electric Lady uh, Land Studios on St. Mark's Place. That's Jimi Hendrix's place um, in New York. And uh, we had kind of rehearsed the song. It was very loose. Um, I think we spent two, maybe three days recording it. You know, again, working on the lyrics in the control room, Patty being very um, supportive and uh, being a trooper and, you know, uh, making editorial changes right away. And uh, we uh, finished it, turned it in, and promptly forgot about it because 
I, 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 I thought the whole idea was kind of, you know, weird and, uh, well, whatever. We had a lot of work to do. So we kind of parked it over to the side and just, just, just forgot about it. I was trying to build a repertory company um, because I, I, I felt that, that that way each artist would help the other artist along and then they all had different skills. And for instance, once August Darnell from Kid Krill and the Coconuts remixed James White and the Blacks Contort Yourself and slowed it down, and added a different bass line. It, um, you know, it turned it trans it turned into something completely new. And in the same way, um, August would play on some. Uh, uh, sorry, James James White would play on some of August's compositions. And so, and I guess in a way, Christina was the link between all of these because she, when I was trying to work with someone new, whether it was August or was not was, um, you know, she she would be brought in as we sort of tried different things out because um, when you start a record company, you can't really sign anyone anyone else wants. Right. Because they'd rather go with someone established. So, um in the same way, James White and the Blacks was because I was, there was this band, The Contortions, I love, but they weren't going to sign with me because they didn't know me. And so, but I wanted to make a disco record anyway, so they gave me James White and the Blacks. And then I met August. So, so the whole concept, I wasn't really that aware of Christmas albums. I mean, I, I knew Phil Spector's Christmas album because I love Phil Spector, but it, it seemed like, we had put out a compilation called Newton Disco, which had been very successful. And when this Christmas album was made, we had not had big sales yet. Our, actually, our biggest seller had been Alan Vega, because Jukebox Baby had been a big hit in France. But neither Kid Creole nor Was Not Was had really sold a lot. And, and we had put out um, I Know What Boys Like as well and No Guilt, which had been a hit. But we, you know, compared to our profile, we were really not selling any records. <laughs> so so um, I mean, our profile was such that, you know, journalists loved us and 
the face would write if it's on Z, buy it. And, you know, Glenn O'Brien in an interview would do the same. And so that's why Chris Blackwell, who had founded Island Breck, was kept funding us. But the sales weren't really there. So I thought, well, I just woke up one day and said, let's make a Christmas record. And I had all these oddball artists. And but I I had only I had consistently signed people because of their songwriting and not their singing, which I think actually is pretty clear in the records I put out because <laughs> there aren't everyone has a voice that's distinctive, but they're not they're not pretty, they're not conventional voices. Right. Which is which is good. Um I'm bad at the same time. So um, it, it limits you somewhat, but it, it, it also means the records have personality. So I started asking my artists to write Christmas records and they were always open to everything. You know, we had a really, really good relationship. So um, it's just a pity that I'd fallen out with Lydia at the time. Because otherwise, you know, she would be on the record and I wish she was. So um, so everyone started writing their songs and um, then we put this record out. It, it, the second version is slightly different from the first version because Was Not Was, D David Was had written about half the lyrics on um, Things Fall Apart. And the first version ended, um, uh, I, I went back home alone again alone. And Christina decided that was really too sentimental. And so it, um, it was, I went back to my flat and wept a bit and fed the cat, which is right. much better. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so we yes. actually... We actually went back in for that. And also I added Charles de Couture the second time because... Um, I produced him in 1981. Chris Blackwell had signed this French artist and um, I speak French. And I'd recorded him and I, he'd gone from 8,000 sales to, it's now platinum in France, which I think is 300,000 copies mm -hmm. or something. So, so I'd made this big hit record with him and we had extra studio time. And I said, well, Give me a Christmas song. So um, it, it, it's a really good discipline to have a subject when you're making records because it those confines in a way, you know, force you to be more creative. If, if a smaller canvas often can makes you focus. But where should we go next, they said. They killed a tree at 97 years and smothered it in lights and silver tears. They all got wrecked, they laughed too loud. I started to feel queasy in the crowd. I got a cab back to my flat and wept a bit and fed the cat. 
back up a little bit because to fill people in on Z Records. So Z starts in, I have 1978. Is that about right? I think, yes, that's about right. right. So why did you start Z Records? So I had arrived in New York in 1975 after university and I'd found CBGBs within three days and had become friends with a lot of the bands there. And I was reviewing plays at the Village Voice, and then I went and did a publishing training program at Condé Nast. But meanwhile, I was still freelancing, and I interviewed John Cale for Interview Magazine, because John Cale was one of my heroes, and still is. And um, so we became friends, and I knew that punk was happening. I had all the singles. Um, I had a friend called Mary Harron who um, had brought back a lot of those records. She's Canadian too. And, um, you know, and we'd, we'd written together for Punk Magazine. In the second issue, we had the cover story, which was about Talking Heads, where we actually talked about how they should add one more member to add to the structure to the texture, which is an interesting thing, considering, you know, that they then brought in Jerry Harrison, who um, really did make a huge difference to that band. So I was aware of punk and John wanted to start a punk label. And so I was, I was thinking that I had enough of um, publishing. And so, he and Jane Friedman, who had discovered and managed Patti Smith, and I started this label, Spy Records. And the problem was that John, at, at the time, he has now been, I would say he's now been clean for 40 years, but he was a speed addict, and it was impossible to work with him. I'm sorry, but sure. uh, we'll just wait till this. I don't know how to turn this off, so... There we go, it's been answered. Um, and so, so the problem with John was that he was a brilliant producer, but he was a speed addict. And so it didn't make for a good business relationship. He went on to make some of my favorite Z records subsequently as an artist. And we are very, very close to this day. So... He, he had found someone called Michelle Esteban, who um, was French and had a band called Marie Le Garçon, which um, John produced for Spy Records. And he made an amazing single with them called Rebop and Attitude. Attitude was the other side. So, so Michelle and I left John and started a label. Now, I should have known that since Michel's big business was um, a T-shirt company in Les Halles, where he stole the logos of punk bands and put them <laughs> on T-shirts, and this was all out in the open. Right. And the artist would come to the... Um, you know, would come to the store and he'd give them, you know, t he'd give the Clash 
clash t-shirts and things. But I should have known that his ethics were really questionable. And so um, I lasted a year with him. So I had two partnerships within the space of 18 months that both went bad. And But meanwhile, I had started signing all these New York underground bands like James White and the Blacks, and immediately they signed the contortions with me because I had a track record. So despite the fact that I hadn't put out the James White and the Blacks record yet, they felt I was legit. So we put out two records quickly. I met August Darnell. um, And then all, you know, I, I made an album called Queen of Siam with Lydia because I saw her as this beautiful torch singer despite what teenage jesus and the jerk sounded like right that was how i viewed her and so ah, ah. that that was the record we you know made um i mean i thought she was this sort of sultry temptress which she is yes among other so, among many things yes so so um you know and and then I was on my way and Chris, I had met Chris Blackwell through a friend and he was financing it in return for the rights to distribute in the world outside of America, which was great because that meant I had distribution there. And then I would sell each record individually in America. So we started, um, actually, I wasn't quite right about our first big record. Our first big record was called Deputy of Love by Don Armando's Second Avenue Rumba Band, which was uh, an August Darnell offshoot. And that was a number one dance record and sold a lot. The thing is, we weren't paid for it because since no one wanted to distribute us in America, um, we found someone, a company called Buddha Records, that was willing to put it out. And Buddha had a distribution deal with Arista. But it turned out that Arista had given Buddha, which was controlled by Morris Levy, mm. who I don't know if you know who... Morris Levy was basically the mafia right, right. in the record business. And um, there's a brilliant Tommy James and the Shondells... Uh, to- Tommy James of the Shondells memoir that is my favorite rock and roll book. And it's about basically Morris Levy. So (laughs) we, so, so we were not paid for um, Deputy of Love because the royalties from Aris's perspective went against Buddha's debt. Right. So Buddha didn't have the money to pay us. So, um, so, so there were lots of false starts and had I, instead of going to Condé Nast, had I perhaps, you know, spent, two years of Atlantic records, I might have, you know, avoided some of these pitfalls, but it was okay because Chris was financing me meanwhile. So we were able to survive and Morris Levy settled for 30 cents on the dollar with me when I really needed money so that I could make the first was not was record. Right. So, um, you know, so it, it was, muddling along and suddenly we had this roster that of of brilliant artists who that there was a governing aesthetic in a way in that um the the words would often contradict contradict the music the music would be very upbeat 
and the words were really quite dark, like Kid Cree on the Coconut's biggest record, Annie, I'm Not Your Daddy, um, is this totally sort of transfixingly upbeat calypso, but in the verses, this father is telling his daughter that actually, you know, his mo her mother fucked around and um, that actually she isn't his daughter. And then he goes, and if you were in my blood, then you wouldn't be so ugly. Right. But this was a major hit because it sounded so seductive and upbeat. And so that was kind of the aesthetic. And Was Not Was, in a way, the most interesting band because they came to me because of the records I put out. They had this record, Wheel Me Out, and they no one really wanted it. And... Um, they were very clever. They could tell I cared about the press. And David was was the the jazz critic for the Herald Exam LA Herald Examiner. And he called me up and said, There's this amazing record that you should hear. <laughs> and then Don, they had no money, but Don flew in from Detroit and he played me this record. And it was everything I'd been trying to do, L literally. It was, to me, it was perfect. It was so perfect that at the end of it, there was a Dolby tone that wasn't meant to be in the record. And when we went to master it, I couldn't hear the Dolby tone. And um, I said, well, where's that tone at the end? And that had just been an artifact because they'd re-recorded over a, tape that had that Dolby tone so when it cut so you know so we reinserted the Dolby tone so it was absolute perfection to me and I could I had no money because I hadn't been paid for Deputy of Love so they gave me the record Material had their first two submissions for um, their first record with me, which was Busting Out, which was another huge dance record, rejected because they weren't danceable enough. Right. And they adhere totally to the formula because they took George Jackson's prison letters and put them to a disco beat with Nona Hendrix. And, uh, and I actually heard It's a Holiday recently, and it's fantastic. Yeah, it their, still is. Their, their Christmas record is amazing. Yeah. So, you know, and they were really a sort of avant-garde jazz band. And they made these two records for me, you know, which were not like anything else they'd done. So there was a, there was a serious direction for about three years. 
where I knew exactly what I was doing. One of the things I always found fascinating about the Z lineup was, on one hand, I understood that as you know, as myself as a music writer as well, everything about it made sense to me. That the wit, that the the clear intelligence, the both lyrical and musical intelligence, the idiosyncrasy, was all stuff that completely registered for me. But I also realized already that looking at the tea leaves, looking at the market, that the market never wants funny unless fun unless it's you know unless it's really broad uh, novelty songs. And, uh, and and I was wondering like was there a period where this looked financially like this could really work like these were like like the contortions were a good business decision. Well, I never made a record that I didn't think everyone should own. Right. So, so I was always convinced I was making pop records, and in the end, you know, it was very successful financially. But the reason. Um, Kid Creole were very successful in in Europe, in in Europe, and um, the waitresses were successful. And then what happened was, it turned out that the fifty cents I had to levy off the royalties that we were getting in order to make it work became a tax on the successful artists. So, therefore, I would get bought out of my contract for a lot of money. Right, and that's what happened so so that was why i quit in a way because i knew that it would it wasn't sustainable right because um while while bands were happy to be subsidized they didn't want to be the ones subsidizing necessarily right so 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 that was the problem financially and also i did very well with publishing because i had um you know, I had a, a lot of odd songs like Why Do You Do It by Marianne Faithful, and then Steve Bray, because my last big signing was The Breakfast Club. Um, you know, he wrote a lot of songs with Madonna for her th- first three albums, and so I had some publishing on that. So um, so it was fine in the end financially, but but it it felt very weird. I mean... I was absolutely convinced that Lydia and Suicide, you know, should be huge bands. That um, And it's hard. I was listening to Joy Division the other day, and I was trying to figure out what it was about Joy Division that made them so much more commercial. And I think... Or even a band like the Dream Syndicate, who didn't, in the end, matter that much. And I think it's what you were talking about, that there isn't that sort of novelty quality to it, or that airiness and wit. If you're totally intense and sincere, people will buy into it more. But actually, I think my records talk just as much about what you know, the human condition was, as theirs did. I mean, Transmission or Love Will Tear Us Apart are heartbreaking records, but they're not nearly as great as Ballad of a a Thin Man, which is a song that has wit 
I mean, that whole album has so much sort of wit and playfulness, and that to me makes for a greater record. So I'm not saying that any of my artists, you know, were that remarkable, but, and I've never actually thought about this before right now, but I, I think, I think that's the difference. So um, I called my Z perspective compilation laughing in the face of adversity. Was it laughing or dancing in the face of adversity? I think it may have been dancing in the face of adversity, but it it could have been laughing in the face of adversity. And the second Was Not Was album was Born to Laugh at Tornadoes. So, you know, there was that sense that let's let's not just be miserable and, you know, talk about everything that's awful in the world. And, And, you know, those records can be some of the greatest records ever. Like, the, there's a reason that The Message is the greatest rap record ever made. It's because it's about something. Right. And it's viewed from the inside. But when I would try to get August to write protest songs, because I was always trying to get people to write protest songs, but um, with their aesthetic, you know, you got No Fish Today, which was... Um, a, you know, uh, basically what it was, you know, a, a song about sort of fishermen who, you know, there's just no food today. And so right. it, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't visceral. Right, right. Yes. It's, um, it, it's tangential. Right. And so I think all of those Z bands that, there was so much irony in the records. And I think that that's what you were alluding to. And it is difficult to move beyond the novelty record when you're using irony, except our records musically were extraordinary. you mentioned uh, suicide and I was trying to and I wondered about the conversation with Alan Vega when it came time to ask Alan if he could do a if he could do a Christmas song well it was it was fine because you have to understand I was their record company and it's not like they had a lot happening right that much right and I was also Alan's solo artist so therefore there are two records there's an alan vega one and there's a suicide one because um it i mean he was totally up for it 
they it it was a fun thing to do in a very very hot summer in New York. Right. But it was hard. I had to I had to constantly call them up and say, you know, where are you with your record? And I want to hear it because I always heard everything before we recorded them. Right. It was, they all liked the idea. They really did. They were all happy to do it because it was making another record. I probably gave them, you know, a few thousand dollars advance each. Not a lot, but it's still something. Right because none of them were huge successes yet. I do know that the Waitresses record, um, Jerry Jaffe, who had signed them, who wanted to sign them to Polydor, I said, you know, well, they're making this Christmas record. And um, he said, oh, sure, you know, thinking, big deal. And then when it came out, he said, why didn't you tell me what this was? I said, well, I told you. So he was surprised because it was such a such a standard, really. Right. Yeah. So um, but it it was just I can't it's hard to express the sense of possibility that there was in music in nine from nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty-three or four at my label. Everything seemed possible. It was all fun. You know, driving the bus because you were going to do some gigs with Kid Creole in Paris and you flew to Brussels because it cost less. And I would drive the bus. That was fun. You know, it was all, it was like a co-op. It, it really was a repertory company and it had that sense of solidarity. Right. So let's go ahead and check. I actually, I have to tell you, I interviewed, uh, I've interviewed both Chris Butler and Mars Williams uh, from Waitresses, right. uh, both yes. about this separately. And, and Chris was saying that, you know, when you asked, it was like, okay, I'm in. But it wasn't, it wasn't an idea that seemed automatically a good idea to him. Did you have it? Did you, when you heard it, did you have a sense this could, this had potentially longer legs than other tracks on the record? I thought it was fabulous. I actually, I actually thought things fall apart was um, sonically was the most interesting record. I you know, I loved every track. There wasn't one track I didn't love, and I loved them all for different reasons. And um, but. I didn't know the Christmas wrapping would become a standard because right. it's an odd record. I didn't know that it could be covered because I didn't think Patty, Patty's vocal could be bettered. Right. And yet, you know, the Spice Girls could make a really great version. And I heard another version that came out just recently. Um, there's this record show called Sophisticated Boom Boom on um, WFMU. That's my favorite record show. And on their Christmas um, special this year, they played a new version. And um, so I can't quite remember who's in it, but it was really great. So I didn't realize it could be covered in that way.
I viewed the record as a record and not a collection of singles. I mean, it was sequencing it was really interesting. How so? I well, because you wanted to flow and to tell a story. And it's you know, and 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 the sounds of some of these bands are quite different from one another. Right. So you know, it it was it was meant to be. It was meant to be a complete offering, but it's not like the Phil Spector um, Christmas record where sonically it's of a piece. It's really not sonically of a piece at all, but actually I think it flows really well. No, I, I agree. Um, I, I still have it as vinyl and listen to it yeah, as vinyl. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Sure. In early 81. And no I, one, no, everyone felt like Chris, by the way. No one felt this was a great idea. Part of what I thought was really interesting, and this is sort of where our conversation started before, before we turned the recorder on, I think, was that what I responded to was that the, so many of the songs were songs for the people who listened to that music. Uh, one of the things I talked with Chris about was that when I heard is that it was Christmas music, a Christmas song about people, you know, about people who went to clubs. It wasn't about children. It wasn't about mom and dad. It was about a single girl who has, uh, who realized she forgot something, forgot her cranberries, went to the store and found the guy she's been trying to date all year. And, and the fact that similarly like Christina's things fall apart was about again about club goers and it was about people who lived a very specific life and that it was not about children they didn't factor into the story parents didn't factor into the story this was about this woman her relationship her life now and it was christmas for a 20 something who lived a rock and roll life and i hadn't heard or seen christmas music that spoke you know, to me, my friends, and the lives we were lives we were leading. I don't think there'd been one. I really don't. Um, it was. Um, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I actually I don't remember what I was thinking when I decided to do it. Um, all of this is a bit of a haze as well. I was living in a, you know, I was living in a recording studio a lot of the time. Um, I I think it was just, I think it might've been influenced by Mutant Disco and thinking, what compilation can I do? What can I, what can I do to tie my bands together, to get more attention for them, you know, to help their careers along. Because their careers weren't really, um, 
I mean, Slash had sold a lot more of X's first album than we had sold of any records at that point. Right. You no, know, and until Kid Creole, what can I do to bring attention to my bands? And what would be really fun? And what would be really interesting? And what's universal? Sure. Which is Christmas. And what does Christmas mean? to different people because Christmas is this time of enforced jollity when you're just, you are meant to be happy at Christmas. And life wasn't particularly happy in 1981 New York um, or 1981 America. I mean, you had Reagan who just come in and suddenly you know, there was going to be this cult of money. And I think I foresaw that. I could tell that, you know, things were going to be... Art was being increasingly marginalised. The record business was... um, The music on MTV wasn't my music at all. Right. There were no black bands on MTV. Um, You know, it, it just felt like it just felt like this is something people would respond to, that my people like me would respond to. Right. That was all. It was totally instinctive. It wasn't like like this campaign or this idea, but I'm thinking that those are the things that went through my mind. And I thought I have these great writers. And these writers can write to order. was the story uh behind uh things fall apart i asked what i I was thinking that was not what should produce christina because she had previously been produced by um august and um but with is that all there is we got a sense of what she could be doing differently and more talky and so they wrote it for christina and then she changed some of the lyrics and we went, and then she kept changing the lyrics, as we mentioned yeah, earlier. Yeah. So, so um, that was their first record with her. And then Don went on to produce Sleep It Off. But Christina had Christina wrote the lyrics for, for the non-cover songs on Sleep It Off. So this was Christina's first attempt at sort of um, contributing lyrics. But they're mostly David's lyrics. Oh, okay. That that's that was one of my stand, favorite songs on the album, and in part because her persona on the record was so perfect and so credible, and and so and so consistent with her body of work that whether whether she was writing it or others were writing it for her and she was interpreting material, I always I thought she had the ability to make everything sound one hundred percent her. I believe that person existed. Whether that person was actually her, 
that's a whole different question. But the person, the, right. the, the, the persona that we heard on a record was 100% credible and it had a great sort of gallows sense of humor that, that also seemed equally yeah. possible. And it still had heart, which was, I thought. The- and it still had heart. They, David was, is one of the greatest lyricists in, in my view. Um, I really, um, he, he understood humor and irony, but above all heart. And he and Don together were something else. And so, um, it, it's a was not was record, but for Christina and with Christina. Oh. For Christmas cheer I said we can't afford the tree He said love is free So we trimmed the cactus With my earrings that we'd meant to pawn There wasn't any snow But there was rain He licked me like a candy cane And then one day he said I can't stand in your way It's wrong Way of what I asked But he was gone You know, one of the things I think that I always thought was fascinating about Z was that idea that you attached sort of so much emphasis to dance music. Because to a great yeah. degree, especially for people who came from from punk, uh, you know, usually they saw dance clubs, dance music, and especially, and especially disco as the enemy. Oh, they were totally polarized, the two functions at the time. And um, they absolutely, but our my specific idea was that if you had the right relationship of bass to drums, then the weirder the stuff on top, the better it would survive repeated listenings. And it was important to have the dance element because that was one of the ways to get the records heard because they could be heard in clubs. I mean, there was no mud club when I started out. Right. It came afterwards that there was hurrahs, but it was, it was um, none of this. I never really thought about marketing that. Um, I, I think it was subliminal when I thought about marketing, you know, it was kind of in my mind, but it wasn't really, oh, let's do this. Right. Um, it was it was instinctive. The, the whole thing was instinctive. And that's why I stopped, because it stopped being instinctive. Because what happened was, once there was a lot of money there, and once, you know, we had sold a lot of records, then people start send, throwing money at you to make records. And they want you to make the same records. And then you start thinking about the record you're making as opposed to just making it out of instinct. So um, I love this band, The Breakfast Club, and I remember playing them to Dave Robinson, who had taken over at Island Records. Um, You know, he, he had founded Stiff Records and he was running Island Records. And I played him, I played him this song by The Breakfast Club, Rico Mambo, and 
I totally, I thought it was fantastic. And so delicate and so moving and a beautiful melody. And he said, why don't you bring me a multicultural dance band? <laughs> and I thought, you know, fuck this. Right. <laughs> so I kept making records with um, with Was Not Was, but otherwise I got out. And then I made two records with someone called Ned Sublet over the next 22 years who wrote the best book about New Orleans. Yeah, I, I've known Ned for a number of years. I haven't talked to him in a while, but I... There's a while where yeah. I used to talk to Ned regularly. Yeah. So, so um, but I stopped for that reason. When Dave Robinson said that, I realized that it wasn't, you know, it had become a business. Right. Yeah. And people gave you money and they expected returns on their money. <laughs> and um, I wasn't interested in that because also I didn't want to be twice the age of my artists. Right. And if you stayed in, I mean, Dave Robinson was older than me, you know, and so he was already dealing with um, with kids half his age. Sure. Because, and I just didn't want to do that. I mean, the fact that all my artists were my age, mostly two or three years older, um, actually almost all... I hadn't thought about this either, but it was very generational, my band. I mean, Lyd my, my label, Lydia was younger than me, but the others, and Christina was a year younger, but the others were all like two or three years older, all born, you know, between 1950 and 1955. Right. Which So I didn't want to deal with people who were born in 65 or 70 because you'd be the old person. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be um, a contemporary. You'd be on a different level. Like, would they be thinking, oh, he knows more? Or would they be thinking, you know, he's an idiot, he's out of touch? And what actually happened was that my one of my sisters was my receptionist and the Beastie Boys were always hanging out in my office. <laughs> and they were younger than me and I didn't understand how great they were right and um well, I didn't fully appreciate it and you know so I realized my time had come sure now you're now you're doing z books yes is there a through line from z records to z books at least aesthetically anyway As aesthetically they are in that it's a series mostly I mean, this year we're publishing four books and two of them are not part of the series. But, um, and it's, um, there's a common thread in that everyone is a really good writer. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and they're about, it's, it's revisiting work. The, two of the first three um were journalists who were dead, Glenn O'Brien. And this one is about, the one that's about to come out, The Ocean is Closed by John Bradshaw. He was a very successful journalist when I first moved to New York for New York Magazine and Esquire. And um, I would say that the commonalities are excellent writing. I won't publish anything that I don't think is beautifully written. And um, 
there's a visual, there's a common visual language and they make very little sense economically because they're entirely for color. (laughs) (laughs) So, So they're hard to reprint. So you might overprint, which you shouldn't really ever do because, you know, it would take ages to reprint them. And, um, they're, and they're my aesthetic. I mean, they're things that I cared about. Yeah. Right. So I, I think that by the time there's 10 or 20 in the series, I it's, it's kind of meant to be an alternative modern library. Cool. So one, once there's 10 or 20 in the series, I think people will want, and the number on the spine is very prominent. So that you know, you'll if you have one and two and you have five and six, you'll want to have three and four because on your bookcase, otherwise there'll be something missing. Right. <laughs> so, so that's that's the theory behind right. it. So one uh it occurred to me one record thing, record song I wanted to ask you about in retrospect was and you talk about how much you value good writing and were you surprised that August's contribution to the Christmas record was to retool uh, Winter on Riverside Drive and not write a new Christmas song? I was disappointed in a way, but I figured he didn't put the same effort into it that others did. (laughs) (laughs) So I was disappointed a bit. Did he tell you he was going to do that? No, he didn't. Now, is that that is a is that a is is it re-recorded or he did he simply drop a new a no, new it's book? It's re-recorded. Oh, okay. It's re-recorded. Yeah, I think it's re-recorded. I'll have to check and see. I I, I have the, the only reason it might not be is that they could both have come from the same demo because often they were demos that we released. Oh, really? Yeah. So, um, the first Kid Creole album is is demos that were done for chapel music. Oh, wow. That were then re-recorded, but we used the tracks from the demos, which Ronnie Rogers had done. So we were always, we were always, always repurposing things. You have to understand that at that time, it cost about six to $800 to make a demo because you had to go to a demo studio or eventually we bought a four track that we had in the office. But um, it wasn't like you could just make records, you know, at home or anything. You had to go to studios. So we were constantly, um, I just don't remember. But we, you know, we were constantly repurposing things again and again and again. I'll 
Thanks to Michael Zilka for the time and the talk. I could have kept that going, but it would have been more for me than for you. I'm sure everybody has that scene or moment or radio station where everything fell together and opened up for them at the same time. And for me, Z Records was a big part of it. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. Also, thanks if you have already subscribed or followed 12 Songs wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't done so yet, I'd appreciate it if you would. And if you're an Apple person, a five-star review helps other people find out about what's going on here. Earlier, we heard from Chris Butler talking about The Waitress's Christmas Wrapping. It has become the cool indie rock Christmas cover. Gareth Jones has included a few versions on Cherry Aid Records' Very Cherry Christmas series of compilations. And I found 50 or so versions on Bandcamp, so many that I think I need to bring someone in to take an episode and rank versions of the song. Last year, No Sleep Records released No Sleep Till Christmas 8, another indie Christmas music compilation that included a version of Christmas rapping by Albany, New York's Hate Club. Here it is. Talk to you next week.